Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, mate? I'm doing very well, James. Thanks so much. So our guest today is none other than Brown University's Lynn Corbell. Lynn is an assistant professor at the Department of Behavioral and Social Sciences at the Brown University School of Public Health. Since 2012, she's been engaged in teaching and training MBSR teachers around the world, and she spent 25 years as an integrative bodywork therapist. She is also the co-author of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, Workbook for Anxiety, and it is brilliant to have her. Lynn, how are you? I'm well, thank you. It's great to be here. So there's so much we can potentially talk about, but I want to start with trauma because trauma is used across disciplines. And I just want to get a working definition for trauma for us here. (laughs) I'm not a, a trauma specialist. I'm more interested in how someone defines their own experience. In a class, if I'm teaching mindfulness, I'm not going to say to somebody, oh, this has been traumatic. Mm -hmm. It's more how somebody's approaching their experience if they use the word trauma, if they say this was a significant event in my life, then I'm going to pay attention to that in, in that particular way or hold that as a possibility that they may exhibit signs of trauma that are recognizable. But it goes back to the person, how they experience it themselves, how they name it. Right. It's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because as you say, there are some recognizable signs of trauma, but it might not be that trauma is something that is only defined by the existence of those signs. Yeah. Along with my body work experience, 25 years of working with individuals, many who had experienced trauma primarily from childhood sexual abuse, I draw deeply from the work of David Trelevin and his trauma-sensitive mindfulness book and his work. And, and he and I are in contact and he, he really talks about traumatic stress. So on the continuum of stress, there are events that are, or what he might call the capital T trauma, the big traumas. And certainly living through the pandemic, the various economic and social issues that are going on right now, the wars that are going on in different parts, those are considered, you know, major traumas. But all of us have gotten through, you know, so much in our lives that leave an impact somehow in our psyches and our minds and hearts. I remember reading, I think it was Jack Hornfield after the ecstasy, the laundry. Mm-hmm. And one of the notes in the book is that he, it blew him away how people from on the paper, very privileged or protected lives up until that point, would go onto the mat and burst into tears. And it's interesting because you want to say two things at the same time. On the one hand, you want to say there are clearly events like the pandemic or a war or sexual abuse, which feel distinctly traumatic. Mm -hmm. And you want to say something about that. But it's also worth recognizing that on some level, it might feel like trauma is relative. Mm. because, Because how is it that somebody without any of those experiences can really demonstrate signs of trauma too. Yeah, and I would also say that in our Western culture, a strong emotion itself is just suppressed. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of emotional responses, like just hard crying, may not be acceptable. 
And so, I mean, we all have moments of that, but whether we allow them to come out or whether they get lodged in our bodies or, you know, we avoid them through different thoughts, that actually can bring about the kind of chronic response that could be as almost as much as trauma. Yeah, this is interesting because, you know, there's this common idea that, well, the body keeps the score. Yeah. And yeah. you can do this top-down, high-level suppression where you, for reasons of psychology, decide you don't want to engage with the emotion. But your body isn't interested in your top-level methodology. It's going to really be the thing that processes it. And I want to basically ask the question, does processing an emotion and I mean that in the colloquial sense. So talking about it, crying, does that affect your body's relationship with the event? I'll tell you what my experience has been is that when, when we begin to have a real relationship with our bodies and we trust our bodies and we give our bodies the, you know, like space and time to emote or to feel what they feel and we believe our bodies, like any other relationship, we begin to form a trustworthy I would say reunion with our bodies. And so we can learn like, oh, this is the language my body speaks. So if I go into an experience with someone and my belly clenches, if I've gotten to really know myself, that belly clench is gonna say, I feel funny. And I'm, I'm, my behavior is gonna change until I figure out what that belly clenching means. So I might not be as forthcoming with that person until I develop more trust. That through that relationship with the body, that is the processing of emotion. Just crying when you need to cry or just looking at the thoughts is usually not quite enough. It's like this ongoing relating with ourselves in a particular way. I would say this is where mindfulness comes in, knowing something about the body, coming in close to it, being willing to listen, knowing how to respond, learning through, through those things. That is what supports healing. So mindfulness helps us better understand the body. And so that we can start to trust the body. And I guess the body starts to trust us as well because we make good decisions based on how the body feels. But then is it all being done on the mat in a sort of seated formal posture? Or is there a, I mean, I imagine there's a real blending in your approach between formal, non-active sitting meditative practice and something maybe more dynamic and more embodied. Is that right? Yeah. And so I haven't been a body worker for a long time, but when I was a body worker, it was happening. It was happening in sessions. So people, I always felt like I was a bit of a translator. My hands were on the body. It was like, what's here, that kind right. of thing. So in meditation, then you're working with yourself, or if you have a, a therapist who works that way, then, then that person can sort of be the translator and intermediary. But then there's your real life, you know, and it's like, having the, the space and the wherewithal to notice what's happening from the body, which often arises in meditation practice. Right. So here's this, this, there's this reflective quality. Yeah. So if we only are sitting, knowing something when we're sitting, and then it never translates into our daily life, it's not going to go anywhere. Right. In your 25 years of experience, has there been something sort of context irrelevant body-wise that's been useful? for this MBSR approach? I mean, shaking, dancing, running, crying. It's more of following what each person needs. So right. sometimes in a class, there are moments where something arises in the whole class that needs some kind of movement or processing. So I might 
read the room and say, okay, let's do some mindful movement, you know, and invite people to do that, you know, breathing more deeply. If there's a quality of freeze in the room, I might mm. invite that kind of engagement. But, in, and sometimes it is a more quicker movement, but mostly it's like attending slowly, but maybe making big movements, you know, or making smaller movements, really inviting the of what's needed now for your, so I could be with 35 people or 50 people and say, so moving in a way that's what you, you need right now, slowly, well, I might, we might start out slow, but then maybe quicken it if that would feel more supportive for you. It's interesting that it's such a nuanced game because I mean, I remember Mark saying that you walk into a room and your body knows before you know. So like your body really has some quite specific antennae. Yeah. and it's often quite difficult to articulate that feeling, but you know when you're not quite getting it right because you're referencing the fact that your body is the ultimate kind of authority on the matter. And I'm wondering in the context of trauma, is that antennae changed in an unhelpful way? Are we oversensitive to certain stimuli that remind us of the trauma? Yeah, that, that can be true. Again, it so much depends on the relationship and the willingness for the person to be in relationship with their bodies. And I would say, especially if there has been a traumatic event and the person knows it, that that one-on-one -on -one kind of work with a therapist, with a body-oriented therapist, that's going to be really critical. It's a little harder to get that kind of nuance in a class. But as teachers, when we trust people that they know how to connect with themselves in that way, so it's that primary permission, and you can experiment. So like, if you're not sure what how to move the body, try something, and then you'll, you'll get feedback pretty quickly. It's interesting though, this whole body as the antenna, I often refer to the body as an instrument, and we're receiving things all the time from places like, it's like, how am I knowing this? But if when we tune in long enough, we do start to know something quite specific and subtle, actually. So here's some good research that's just recently come out. The research shows that the lower your interceptive access, so the less that you have access from the inside about what's going on in your body, the bigger your anxiety. And the reason suggested is, is because the body is giving you information, really helpful information for how to survive and what's good and what's bad, what's useful, what's not useful. And if that's a blind spot, then the system somehow knows it's blind to one bit of important information. And so it has to be highly vigilant. It's like it knows ordinarily, I'm supposed to be getting this channel of information. I don't have good access to it, sort of offset that we need to be hyper vigilant. We need to really be looking because we don't know, we don't have that channel of information coming in. So there's one thing that mindfulness can do because being mindful of the body turns that channel on in some way. Yeah, interoception is one of the well-researched paths of what mindfulness does is it gives us more information. My experience also is, is that it allows and gives permission to people to speak about it. Hmm. to know it and then to name it. So hmm. then there's the, the research that's quite old now about name it to tame it. When we're able to identify something and name it, then we're not all of it. Right. You know, there's some, there's some space in there of like, oh, I can be aware of this and not be consumed by it. Right. So it doesn't overwhelm your window of tolerance, which I actually like as a characteristic of trauma, that if something overwhelms you again and again and again, if you lose your window of tolerance quick, when that bit of stimuli comes up, that's probably something soft, soft at the center, you know? And then it seems like the work is to try to get some space or at least part of the work is to try to get some space. 
That's right. And investigating, where do I go over? You know, one of the things that I say a lot in class is that you will go over. You will go, you know, into your overwhelm zone or outside of the window of tolerance. But if you can bring awareness and a lot of kindness to that moment, you can learn from it. it. There's a lot to learn right there. See, I love that. I love, you know, we talk about that a lot on the show, actually, that a lot of the benefit from meditation, you know, I mean, maybe all the benefit is not trying to suppress or push out or ignore, but rather through learning. That's what the practice is all about, right? You're trying to learn about yourself and in learning, you get better. So what you're saying there is, you know, you're gonna slip out of your window of tolerance. Welcome to being a human. You get all the good stuff too, but you also get overwhelmed. It comes in the package. I mean, if only we could learn what it feels like to slip into overwhelm and to learn some skills and tools to bring us back, then actually that's gonna be super beneficial to occasionally hang out at that edge. I mean, that's going to be beneficial for maybe the long term also. Yeah. And that's so in class one, I don't use the windows of tolerance. I use the circles. So the zones of experience, Mm -hmm. comfort zone or resource zone where you go to to replenish yourself, the eustress zone or the appropriate challenge and then overwhelm. And that we normalize it. This is the way the nervous system travels all the time. And start noticing that's as a mindful, as an informal mindfulness practice, where are you? in those zones. Yeah, something I want to pick up on here, just because we've been speaking about overwhelm and windows of tolerance, is anxiety. Because the best way I've heard this described is anxiety is a game of two darts. So the initial dart is the stimulus, the bad stimuli. And if we were mindful, we could probably leave it there. We would just notice, oh, that's an anxious thought. But the game we tend to play is go, oh, that's a really interesting thought. Let's like follow that and take the dart out and put it back in and put it back in and put it back in. And with that context, I want to ask, why is mindfulness, why does it have such a unique relationship with anxiety? Like, what is it about the way anxious thoughts and anxious overwhelm develops that means that mindfulness can actually be interventionist in a helpful way? Oh, so interesting. I think about anxiety as being primarily fueled by uncertainty. Um, And we live in an extremely uncertain world. It's always been this way. And we're, we're really aware of it with the pandemic. I feel like the blush is, was off the rose in the pandemic. It's like this impacts our bodies. So there's this uncertainty and the anxiety arises around what's going to happen and the future planning. So Jamie, I don't know if this is completely answering your question, but there's something about when we come to the present moment, when we really come to the present moment, that anxiety, like there's nothing to be anxious over in the present moment. It's when we go into what's going to happen, the future, is the past going to follow me into the future? Did that thing that happened when I was four, is it going to happen again? That it's our relationship with time and what we don't know. And I think that mindfulness, many other kinds of meditation are primarily to come into relationship with ourselves and uncertainty. Wow. I really sympathize with that. So I've traveled around the world many times. I, sp- I traveled for about 10 years. So I've lived, I've lived everywhere and I've lived in lots of kinds of places with lots of kinds of people. I've only had two dangerous experiences in my life. And yet I've experienced high vigilance anxiety based on those two cases. Well, I've had, I don't know, 10,000 great experiences where people supported me and loved me and took care of me and saw I was lost and picked me up and took me somewhere great and protected me and looked out for me. I have countless of those. And I have two, I only have two where I got into a little bit of trouble. And in both of those, it wasn't an extreme trouble, but still it was enough. Still it was enough to tune the system in a way that took, you know, quite a long time to untune. 
they had such big gravity right away. You know, it's amazing that have one little bad experience and it creates a huge gravity well, have 10,000 good experiences and they barely dent the surface. Because of the threat, the threat of right. for your survival. Right. So you can miss lots of smiles and it's not dangerous. But if you miss the tiger tail, that could be potentially problematic. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, degree is important and low level anxiety is like a slightly different beast in some ways to seriously dehabilitating anxiety. So my question is, where is MBSR most effective? Well, again, so much depends on the person and their, what do I want to say, their openness to mindfulness, their willingness to practice, what other resources and sort of constitutional sturdiness that they come in with. Because I've had people with, with a diagnosis of general anxiety disorder and, and respond quite well. Other people might find it may be more challenging, but with movement, sometimes for some people, the movement practices, mindful movement or walking practice is much more stabilizing than a sitting still practice and then gradually growing their movement practice to more stillness. So I, I think that I think the general anxiety disorder is is pretty workable with MBSR. I don't know what the research is saying about that right now. I think it's mixed. You know, some people respond well to to mindfulness and others not. And some people respond better to more informal practices versus a, you know, a 40 minute sitting practice a day. I was going to ask you, Jamie, because the answer here is that it's very personal. I know you have a formal practice and I know you've practiced in ways that were related to anxiety. I was just wondering, how was that for you? I mean, what worked for you in the meditative tradition for this? My relationship with meditation started through Headspace and it was magic. I was that annoying kid at uni who just couldn't stop banging on about like the meditation thing because it totally changed my relationship with anxiety. I considered myself to have low level anxiety, which looking back was probably more in the middle, but having a 20 minute practice, so not doing any of the funky stuff, we're not doing loving kindness, we're not doing anything dry in yeah. sight, no, no, no. Just sitting for 20 minutes gave me a skill and the skill was effectively during the anxiety spirals, you have an opportunity to not through any skill, but just through mm -hmm. changing your attention, get the thing to run out of steam. And I found the labeling that you mentioned hugely effective. The interesting discovery of that exercise was my experience can be radically changed by redirecting attention, which is kind of a discovery so big that religions have been made of it. Yeah. <laughs> but because that's been my relationship with it, and I haven't had the counter, I don't know what the alternative would be like if that just didn't really work for me. I'm always interested in mindfulness and anxiety when it's not just a case of breaking attention, but the softer skills involved become important. And I was just wondering, we spoke off air briefly about the fact that, you know, your students have had a whole range of experiences over the years. I'm interested when mindfulness helps someone with anxiety, what does it look like usually? Like if, if there is, am I, am I a regular case? Am I kind of off the side somewhere? I think so. No, I, I think you're a pretty regular case. And I do believe that research shows that that kind of focused attention, so not loving kindness, not open monitoring, but like coming to the breath or your feet on the floor or one, one pointed is very stabilizing. And I'm sure there's brain scans too, of like it shuts down some parts of the brain, opens up others. So I would say that your experience is, is what I've known in classes. Again, for some people, it's it's supportive to do more 
walking or movement practice first and then coming to, to sitting. But yeah, and elation, the kind of like, whoa, <laughs> this is a big deal kind of moment. Well, speaking of elation, Mark, we sometimes speak about the fact that I think it's physiologically elation and excitement is very difficult to distinguish from anxiety. Yeah. Like if you're just looking at the body, yeah. which again is one of those discoveries so big, you should probably go make a religion out of it. Yeah, that's good. You know, I'm really interested in actually this right now in research is thinking about reframing and the way that mindfulness and meditation skills can help you reframe, gain some cognitive flexibility. We've said it a few times on this show, but some of our some of our more recent research is looking at pathology as stickiness. There's something about stickiness and rigidity that's not healthy for our kind of cognitive system over the long term. And you can look at kind of anxiety and OCD and depression and addiction. In some way, they're sticky. And learning how to unstick so that you can change the frame quickly looks like it's a really valuable just human skill you you don't call it meditation call whatever you want but if you can learn to unstick at will that's a nice thing and then there's i mean one of the nice things about it is you're right the arousal signature of anxiety and of excitement is really similar. I went through a little bout at the end of my PhD where I was having um, some anxiety challenges, you know, having little panic attacks. I think it's very common for the end of a PhD because it nearly kills you. And one thing that worked for me is when I felt it come on, I would jump up and down and pretend I was excited about something. And my brain is really smart, but also kind of stupid. And it would just follow along and be like, oh, this is excitement. It's no problem, I'm just pumped. And then go for a run or something, which is for me, It's not something I wanted to just handle on the mat because it was too big. It was too big to swallow on the mat. The best thing for me was to jump and then, and then run, just literally run it out of myself. And then I was in a better position to sit down and look introspectively to see how it felt and process it that way. I don't know if that's standard, but it worked for me. It's beautiful. It's, and I just, I appreciate hearing both of your examples of how, how you came to this. I feel like just listening to those sorts of stories gives people permission to try things out, Yeah, you know? So, so in, when I teach, I use those kinds of stories and then the class brings their own because we're all wired. So not so differently, but differently enough that we all have preferences we all have things that constitutionally we're going to lean into or lean away from. And so we don't have to think of it as being like, oh, I don't do it right. Or, you know, they do it right and I don't. It's more of like, what what works for me? So I want to just touch a little bit here on something called Kashmir Shaivism. What is Kashmir Shaivism and what role has it played to getting you to where you are now? Well, I this is um, part of my root tradition, which comes out of India, and it's a non-dual path. So I think I think it's most like in Buddhist circles, it's most like Mahayana or Dzogchen. So it's the you know in broadest terms of you can't point to anywhere it isn't. <laughs> it's it's more mis do I want to even say mystical? Wow, it's, it's the real mystical, you know? And <laughs> Yeah, not weird mystical. It's very ordinary mystical. Exactly. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, You know the story? You know the story? A man sitting outside and a holy man comes up to him and says, hey, you know, don't don't point your feet at the temple. He says, where do I put my feet then? Where should I put my feet that it won't point at holiness? And then I'll do that. You just let me know. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Like that. Like that. Yeah. So just I'm interested because that that I know I knew nothing about it this time Mm. of week. 
So I'm just interested in whether, if at all, it helped develop an interest in what you're doing now. Yeah, thank you. So I was following along this path, Siddha Yoga meditation, and it's a yo- it's from the yogic tradition, but it's a meditation. And I am a teacher in that tradition, but I wanted something accessible. And I was a body worker at the time. I saw Healing in the Mind with John Kabat-Zinn, the the Bill Moyer special. And when I saw him relating to the people in his class, I said, I I do that. And there was something about the way John Kabat-Zinn had made meditation accessible that I really related to. And then I felt he, he saw people as whole. He saw there was nothing broken. There was nothing, there was nothing wrong with people. It was really working to access people's resources, the resources that we come in with of being human. And so I resonated very strongly with that particular pathway and trajectory. And so I learned it and, and, and now I teach it. <laughs> it works. <laughs> I love this. No, I love this. I really sympathize with this, you know, from a deep mystical path, you still need to get the language to be able to transmit it to people, especially people who are a bit sensitive around religion or spirituality, deep end spirituality. So how valuable, you know, that you can find inroads, especially through science, because I feel like we've been a bit burned. You know, we really want religion. We really need spirituality in some way. And yet we feel like we've been mishandled. I think collectively in the collective psych, psyche we sort of feel like we've been mishandled so finding roads in that you can communicate these things in a practical pragmatic approachable way i i completely sympathize with this yeah i mean john's language and the way he phrased things was really resonated with me so it's like let's make this really accessible and give people permission to use their own language so i've had nuns catholic nuns stand up in class and say my religion is everything, but it wasn't until I practiced mindfulness that I began to understand how it was impacting me personally. And this is what I say is like, what meaning we make of these practices and how they're sitting with us, that's very unique and individual, but we can talk about them in ways that, that we all understand. Yeah, attention training is for everyone. Yeah. It's not um, culturally dependent in a way. If you have no. attentional, if you have t- attentional capacities, you should learn how to do something with those attentional capacities because they're really important. And we all come in with them. They're right. they're part of our birthright as right. human beings. Right. They actually mostly get covered over. So I, I, I talk about what we're actually doing is uncovering yeah. these these capacities. Not we're not learn. It's not like learning French. If you're an Italian, it's it's not an out there kind of skill. We're cultivating something that's already here. You know, I just really can't believe, you know, we're born with these incredibly complex, powerful, sophisticated brain, nervous system bodies, and we don't get a lot of training in how to do no. anything good with them. We're just like sent into the world, you know, good luck. Like, have fun. And uh, I don't know, thank goodness we have some some paths and some people and some research and some some outlets to start thinking about, well, what do we do? What do we do with these complicated minds? Yeah, so I'm interested in the practical edge here. Mm. For listeners who are interested in taking this for a spin effectively, what do you recommend is a good opening move to get started on developing some of these skills? Well, you know, we're really at a different place than when I first started teaching about 18 years ago. Like, we've got these things and, and we've got a gajillion apps on these things like Headspace and you know, Dr. Judson Brewer, who I who I also work with, he, you know, there, there's just a lot of very accessible for different ages, too. There are programs for teens and children. So 
short, brief applications of mindfulness that are accessible are good ways. Of course, MBSR, MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for people. So for recurrent depression, also been shown to be helpful for anxiety and everything in between. You know, there's books that you can read about and practice along with if, uh, you know, all you have to do is get on the internet and type in. And then there are some people who are really drawn to practices like loving kindness or yoga nidra, or, you know, there are so many avenues right now. In some ways, it's really easy to be overwhelmed by it all. So that's where having a group or having a, a therapist or a coach, somebody who can who's vetted some of it can be useful. But there's a lot out there, a lot more now than when I started. Do you have any recommendations kind of through the forest of possibilities? I mean, there's really some very basic texts like John Kabat-Zinn's Mindfulness for Beginners. I wouldn't even suggest Full Catastrophe Living as a, a good place to start. Mindfulness for Beginners, his book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, is also a really beautiful book of essays. You know, if you've been impacted by trauma, David Trelevin's book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, is excellent. And he's got so many resources that are free on his website. After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, or... Path with Heart. Path with Heart. Michael yeah, that was right. the one I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. There's some beautiful... Tara Brock's work, mm -hmm. Radical Acceptance. And Sharon Salzberg mm -hmm. has some excellent books out around loving kindness. Loving kindness. Yeah, yeah. yeah marvelous books and practices available. And Lynn, just to, to finish up, I want to understand your, your takeaway message mm. for someone listening who's been struggling with anxiety and has tried a bunch of stuff, but a resistance to the meditation thing or the mindfulness thing, because it sounds complicated or abstract or pick your favorite reasons not be interested. What would you kind of, because you spoke about mind openness to mindfulness. Yeah. I, I love this kind of challenge. So don't worry about, don't even think about meditation. Just become aware. So when you sit down at a meal, just really eat your meal. Like really pay attention to what are you tasting? Or when you walk into a room and you see somebody you love, like let yourself feel. What's it like to feel that sense of, oh, I love this person. You know, where do you feel in your body? Where do you feel in your heart? Or, oh, I don't like this. Like, uh, notice all that, but notice it all. Especially for somebody with anxiety, like, where do you lean in? Like, get really curious about the juiciness of your life, that kind of thing. That can be such a great counteraction to anxious moments. I think that's a brilliant place to leave it. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight to be with you Thanks, both. Lynn. This has been the Contemplative Science Podcast, and that was such a treat. Thank you again, Lynn, for coming on. And wherever you are, have a brilliant week. Cheers. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 